Hello, hello. Welcome to uh, episode four of Bye Guy Reviews. I know it's been a while since I've posted last. That is due to just the general situation of what is happening in the world. I'm still trying to figure out how to get quarantine um, integrated with just the life that I live right now. Um, I've been on my phone a lot more, just like mindlessly scrolling through Twitter, uh, watching YouTube videos, and I haven't really had a creative kick in a while. Um, my work is also uh, a lot more draining than it was when I went into the office. I think a big part of that is because I'm a compartmentalizer, so having work, stay at work was always how I did things whenever I clocked in and I was on and I did everything that was required of me by the time I got out so that when I got out I could just focus on myself and what I wanted to do for fun. Uh, that is not what's happening at all anymore. My boss calls me at all hours of the day. He calls team meetings at all hours of the day. Um, being the youngest member on my team, I have like additional responsibilities now of keeping everyone on track with what they're doing, um, like keeping track of all the spreadsheets of who's working at what time from where, who's having what meetings. These were not things that I had to do when I went into the office because there was a whole system of doing that, but now I'm having to do it for everyone else. And it's in, I'm still like relatively new uh, to this particular profession and I'm working in legal. So a lot of what these people say don't make anything, any sense to me because I'm not from a law background. Um, so I'm having to like learn legal jargon as I go about with all of my other tasks that I'm still having to do at the exact same pace that I used to do when I was in the office. Um, our team meetings are a mess. Uh, for some reason, like even though everyone I work with is like 35 and under, they don't know how to use um, their computers, phones, whatever. So we're having our meetings on Skype which is just a not, not a great platform for group meetings. Um, again, they don't, a lot of them don't even know how to use their mics and like how to mute, when to mute, when to unmute. It's just a, it's just a mess. Um, yes, I'm venting, but that's just what's been happening. And every time I get off of one of those meetings that could have been 20 minutes, but dragged on for two hours, I just feel more and more exhausted and I have less and less of an interest to do anything else that requires effort. Um, it is not ideal, but I have hopefully figured out how to make it work. Um, by the end of last week, I felt like, okay, I've, I've got this. So hopefully that stays Tomorrow, another week starts for us here in Taka. So hopefully that continues into next week for me. Um, another thing that's been happening um, is... Actually, I'll save that for... Because that's going to be my first uh, story. So this episode, I'm going to try to keep it on the shorter side. Maybe like 40, 45 minutes. Uh, I just want to run through three uh, quick stories and then I want to get into a kind of hyper-personal um, 
freestyle rant, so I don't have any notes on it, but it's a, it's a very important part of my life and my identity, and it's not something that I've ever talked about with anyone before. Like, none of my friends know about this. Not Like, it's, a, it's just a thing that... Uh, there was like an inciting incident uh, yesterday that really made me think about how important this particular uh, experience was to me and is to me right now. So I want to talk about that at the end. Um, but the first three stories, I'm going to talk about Ramadan. Um, we just got into Ramadan. Today was my first fast. So I'm going to do a little quick like what Ramadan is, what it isn't what how Muslims practice, what you can and can't do um, to support the Muslims that are around you and share and inhabit this world with you, um, a timeline of our day, stuff like that. So I'm going to do like a quick Ramadan, like Q, uh, F, FAQ, FAQ, yeah, frequently asked questions, um, and then just talk about a little bit about how my Ramadan is looking um, for this for this month. Uh, next, I'm going to talk about the Netflix movie, the Chris Hemsworth one that just dropped. It's called Extraction. Um, and I'm going to talk about extractive colonialism. So we'll it'll make a little more sense when we get to that part. Finally, I want to talk about Joe Biden's VP pick. Uh, it needs to be Kamala Harris. It needs to be now. Kamala Harris needs to be announced as Joe Biden's VP. Um, stop messing around. Stop playing around. It has to be her. She's the only option. And I'm going to talk about why in the last segment before I get to my personal story. So hopefully you enjoy and hopefully I can stay on track uh, with the weekly uploads. Um, if you're listening, if you've listened in the past, thank you so, so much. Uh, love the support. And yeah, tell your friends to listen if you like it too. Okay, let's, let's get to our first story. So the correct greeting for Ramadan when you see a Muslim that you want to greet is Ramadan Mubarak, which just means Happy Ramadan in uh, Arabic. So you say Ramadan Mubarak with a big smile on your face because we all could use a little joy because we don't have anything in our bodies for the whole entire day. So what is Ramadan? Ramadan, um, Islam uh, operates on a lunar calendar. So Ramadan is a month uh, like 28 days, 29, 29 days or 30 days um, during the lunar year. So it'll shift up uh, by like 14, 15 days every, uh, every annual like Christian year that we run, that we run on, um, which is the solar year, I guess. Yeah. The solar year. Um, so it'll be like right now it's in April. Back in my childhood, it was in like December, November, and then it like kept jumping up. Um, so right now it's in April, uh, we're for a month, Muslims around the world are going to be, uh, abstaining from eating or drinking, uh, in any form from sun up to sundown. So obviously this is, uh, different lengths of time depending on where you are geographically. So some people will have fasts that are like, uh, 14, 15 hours. Some people will have fasts that are like 18, 19 hours, depending on how long the day is. Uh, the general rule is that it's from when you can first see the sun, 
uh, is when you stop eating and drinking. And then when you, uh, when the sun starts going down, some people eat again when the sun starts to go down. And then some Muslims eat when the sun has completely disappeared and there is no light anymore. So uh, the sun up, like when we stop eating, uh, is consistent among, and this is like to the best of my knowledge, it's consistent among all sects of Islam. But when we start eating differs depending on what sect you're, um, you're practicing from. So either you eat uh, at the first sign of like, okay, the sun is like going down and then, or like it's begun to descend. And then some people wait until it's completely disappeared. So, um, why we do this? We do this to, uh, A, show our dedication to Allah. It's a, um, it's a way to, um, show him that, him, I have issues with, uh, using a gendered pronoun to describe Allah. So I'm, I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to use them. I have to get into that practice. Um, it's a way to show them that, uh, we, we are capable of restraint. We are capable of, um, uh, just doing, uh, things that may not come naturally to us and, uh, resisting and avoiding temptation, uh, for a higher purpose. Um, B, this is why I personally love Ramadan and fasting is because it allows us to empathize with folks who are food insecure. It is not always easy to identify who is food insecure. And it's also um, not, there's no way that me as, an, as a regular everyday person will be able to get rid of food insecurity. So while I should be doing my part to make sure that everyone is fed well. Um, the least I could do is show a little bit of grace and a little bit of solidarity with them by uh, refusing to consume anything. Um, yes, it's voluntary uh, and it's not the same experience, but by having that experience, there is a certain empathy that is created uh, that allows you to appreciate your blessings and also uh, appreciate the hardships and struggles that some other folks are going through, um, which they shouldn't have to be going through. Um, so this brings me to my next point, which is what, like, what happens during the day. Usually what will happen is you wake up at a normal time. Um, uh, offices in like predominantly Muslim countries will open maybe like an hour later just to give people a, a little bit of relaxation because there's no nutrients in their body. Um, you go to work, you come back from work a little bit early, we'll uh, usually start like preparing the food about an hour, two hours before it's time to eat and you'll have like uh, in your first meal which is when the sun goes down, um, you'll have like some fried stuff, some fruits, some uh, dates. Dates are like the big, the big Ramadan food is uh, you have dates at your table and you break your fast with dates. Like that's the first thing you eat because that's what our prophet used to do. Um, and water. And you'll eat for like some time and then we go to our uh, evening prayer. And then we'll come back and eat again usually. And then it's do whatever you want until dinner and then 
there's a long prayer that happens um, just during Ramadan because we pray as Muslims five times a day. Uh, so there's an evening prayer and there's a night prayer. The night prayer has um, an extra component to it, which is quite long um, that you do between like evening time and like sleeping. So you do the longer prayer, some people do it before dinner, some people do it after. So then the second meal of the day is dinner. And then you go to sleep. Um, some people go to sleep at like 10, some people go to sleep at 1 a.m. It doesn't really matter um, when you go to sleep. It's kind of just like up to your routine. And then you wake up again like a half hour, 40 minutes before the sun rises and you have like breakfast, I guess. So you eat, um, if you're like thinking about the day forward, you eat things that help you retain water, um, things that like give like brain foods that'll keep you active for a lot longer, like maybe nuts, um, eggs, milk, uh, lots of water. And then you go to sleep and then wake up whenever you wake up for work. Or if you don't have work, just wake up at like a, whenever you normally wake up. Um... Part of the reason why I love Ramadan so much is because, like I said, it allows uh, regular people that are not insecure monetarily or uh, that have access to food all the time to empathize with what um, some other folks are going through. What ends up happening, which I don't like a whole lot, is that most people, because they haven't been eating all day, when they finally get a chance to eat, they will just feast on, like, countless, um, like, amounts of dishes. They'll just eat everything, anything and everything, and that kind of defeats the purpose if you are, um, if your, if your, like, motivation to fast is, is empathy and creating that bond, um, it's, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to to eat in excess when you can. So you should be eating normal amounts that'll, that you eat during any regular day, but you shouldn't be like inhaling food. Um, for me, I think that defeats the purpose of what this uh, process is asking us to learn about the world. And so at my house, we definitely do not feast. We're, we just have like, again, regular amounts of food. It's like, what we consume in the evening is a little bit more than what we would have for evening tea. Um, what we consume for dinner is basically the same. And what we consume before, uh, before sunrise is just breakfast. So it's a fairly even routine with just like lunch removed. What I love about Ramadan more is that we, um, it's a celebration in any Muslim majority country. If you go and visit, you will see that everyone is happier. We're tired, but we're happier. Um, we are more, like, we're more friendly. We're, uh, we go and share these meals, that the first meal with our loved ones, me and my family growing up. Uh, we are a very, like, social butterfly type of family, like all four of us, me, my brother, my mom, and my dad. So almost every day we would show up at, like, someone else's house, obviously announced, um, and share that meal, and then people would come over to our house and share that meal. So it was just like a time, it gives you time to appreciate family. It's like Christmas, but for a whole month. And then at the end, we have, at the end of the month, we have Eid, which is like Muslim Christmas, 
and it's like a big celebration and that's where you do all your charity work and you do um you get together with family and eat and then you maybe go to a graveyard to pray for uh, loved ones that you've lost um you go pray in the mosque in the morning like there's just a big celebratory feel all of ramadan and then it ends up with a huge like party that is at the end of the month so how that has changed in quarantine uh is completely it's changed entirely um there are no feasts happening at, at least as far as i'm aware of nobody that i know is throwing a feast right now um we have consistently throughout our lives that we've lived in taka spent the first day of ramadan having our first meal which is called iftar by the way um just uh, you know just if you hear anyone say i had iftar like come over for iftar um that means the first meal that happens at sundown um we we're used to having that at my grandma's house my grandma's no longer with us my mom's mom but my mom's older sister also lives in that house and so she's kind of like the matriarch over there and we've had it at that house every single eid that we've been physically present in taka um in ramadan that we've been physically present in taka but this time that is not the case obviously so my mom made just our regular everyday iftar uh for our first one and that's not what we're used to um so that it, it's an adjustment it's kind of like sad that we don't get to see my whole my mom's whole family um just because it's such a tradition but obviously we're staying indoors we're not like leaving the house um things you can do as a non-muslim to help muslims during this time is um with consent hugs hugs are nice all the time but especially when you are deprived of like essential nutrients and you're living in a country where everyone isn't attuned to what you are like experiencing it gets really hard because people expect you to function at the exact same level but and offer you like no grace so any grace that you can extend be it in terms of a hug like positive words of encouragement um just any anything that would like lift up our day is very very helpful and allows us to feel good in how we practice our faith my uh, faith my coworkers back in the US were amazing about this they always made sure to ask me how i was doing made sure to like offer to do labor intensive jobs for me during the daytime um if i was assigned to like oh lift this box they would be like no let me do it cuz he's fasting and obviously i signed up for the job that is still my job i understand that but it's just nice that um they were able to step up, um step in and say hey we recognize that you're doing something uh that's important to you and if we can help at no like cost to us we're going to do that so shout out to all my coworkers from the united states especially shout out to one specific uh coworker who i worked with for a year and every ramadan since then since i before i left la she would have me over um and offer all the time to make me iftar and have that meal with me it meant the world i talk about it all the time and if you can do that that is like the biggest um 
that is the most positive feeling ever. Uh, and if you're able to offer that to someone, I would say do it because a lot of us that are, especially a lot of us that live abroad or like in countries where Muslims aren't the majority, it just means a lot to see uh, other people appreciating you practicing your faith and uh, offering you a meal and free food is always great. So that is, um, those are just like some basic things. What not to do, uh, don't feel pity. We're doing this for a purpose. We're doing this because we believe in its message and we're doing this because of our dedication to our religion. We don't need pity. Um, so don't be like, oh my God, that must be like so hard for you. Like it is, but we we signed up for it. Like we know what we're doing. It's it's voluntary, especially if you're an adult. Because if you're, if you're kids, um, I don't want to talk about like what you should be doing in high school because... I don't know. I don't think any high schoolers are listening to this anyways. I'm talking more like working professionals or college kids, like what you can do as an adult to offer some grace to uh, the other adults in your life who are going through this. So don't feel pity. Um, solidarity is great. Um, I had in, uh, in high school, uh, after junior year, uh, friends a couple of us took a trip to visit one of our friends in san diego and then all three of them fasted with me while i was fasting and they had a good experience so things like that i mean i'm not saying you have to fast but just showing that you understand that your muslim friends are going through some change and they're doing something uh, and you acknowledging it, it really does lift up our spirits to hear that. Um, that's it. Uh, yeah, we try to be a lot more, like a lot better people during this month. And it's, it doesn't always sustain throughout the whole year, but at least the efforts there during this month for us to like, we will pray more. Um, we have, we do more charity during this month. We do more, um, like we spend more time with family. We don't typically like if you're, if you're a bad Muslim like me who like does drink and do drugs and watch porn and have sex, um, you still try to refrain from those like sins more <laughs> um you try to reel it in a little bit more but i have not been so successful yesterday i had a drink and then today i watched porn but it's okay um i'm i'm yeah, mm, i'm going to try to abstain from alcohol and pornography for the rest of the month i'm gonna try but um yeah, that's that's about it. That's about it for Ramadan. Okay, next. Okay, next. We are going to talk about this movie called Extraction. And I want to preface this by saying I'm not commenting on the content of the movie because I have not and do not plan on seeing this movie. Um, I'm not going to be offering any commentary on whether what they're depicting is accurate, whether it is necessary, um, uh, bleh, whether it's accurate, whether it's... Um, 
well-intentioned, whether it's well-acted, none of that. I'm not going to talk about that because this is an unnecessary movie. So I am going to talk about the fact that it's necessary in that I want to say it's not. Um, this movie has been on my radar for a while because um, just just because, just because it like has popped up on my Twitter like long before it got released. And I was kind of expecting exactly what it is. Uh, this movie is supposed to be a movie about Dhaka, which is my city, Dhaka, Bangladesh. It's our capital. Um, and that's where I live. That's where I was born. I grew up here. And then I was in the States and then now I'm back here. I work here. So it's supposed to be a movie about Dhaka. But it was shot in Mumbai, which is a city in India. Um, okay. Uh, I honest, like, I, I literally couldn't be bothered to watch this movie because whatever story that they're trying to tell, it is happening from a heterosexual white male perspective. None of the white male perspective commentary on poverty or terrorism in my country is relevant. It does not matter what white people think is going on here because they will never ever understand the realities that people in my country, my people have to deal with or any people across the world have to deal with because of the inequality structures that were created and maintained by white people and white supremacy. They don't get to comment on whatever it is we're facing, negative, positive accomplishments, like things that make us look like the worst people in the world. They don't get to comment on that. That should be, these stories should be stories that we're telling as people of color, as people that belong in countries that were destroyed by either extractive or settler colonialism. We get to tell these stories. Creatives that come from our communities need to be the ones telling these stories. I just want to run down this list of who is working on this movie, just so I'm like, you don't think I'm just like rambling about nothing. It was directed by Sam Hargrave, who is a white man. It was produced, um, one of the producers is Chris Hemsworth, who is a white man. He is the lead actor. So a white man produced and then cast himself. Um, I know casting, like producers don't do casting, but still like just the fact that he produced this, he was involved in the production of this movie and then he acted in this and still he didn't see a, an issue with the fact that his team was all white people. That's an issue. So, produced, acted, Chris Hemsworth. The first woman who is cred credited as a producer is Shelby Malone. She is a white lady, and she is listed at the associate producer level. So, no women are executive producers on this film. No women are producers on this film. She is the only woman, and she is an associate uh, producer, and she's white. Um... The cinematography is by Newton Thomas Siegel, who is a white man. The music for this movie, set in Taka City, shot in Mumbai, is by Alex Belcher and Henry Jackman, two white men. Costume design is by a white woman named Bojana Nikitovic. 
Like, do you see the issue with telling a story about the third world from an entirely white people perspective? Like, I don't even care what story you're trying to tell because I ran down that entire list and the only brown people that are working on it are either um, in-country, uh, like, um, site directors or actors. And even the lead role is is a white man, so it's not... Um, it's, they're not even getting leading roles. The actors are like all playing supporting characters. Um, so no brown people. You're telling me you couldn't in all of America, in all of Hollywood, find creatives from either Bangladesh or if you don't know, Bang like a lot of people don't know Bangladesh um, and it's not fine. But even like, let's take that you don't know Bangladesh. You don't know that Bangladesh is a place. Um, you think Dhaka is some like some city in India, you couldn't find any Indian creatives to come jump on board and be like, hey, like, let me add my perspective into the story you're trying to tell about my people. You, like all the immigrant parents that have gone from our countries, moved to the UK, moved to like Switzerland, US, Australia, all, all around the world, the people that are struggling to send their kids to good schools so that they can get an education, a lot of those um, kids go into creative fields and they have issues with getting employment. So you want to tell our stories that are stories um, created because of colonialism. You want to tell that story, but you don't want to employ the people that are living the repercussions of that um, to tell those stories. You don't you don't want them in the creative process. You just want to like tell a story because you're like wanting to satisfy your own creative needs. That's not how it works. You do not get to continue coming and extracting our resources over and over again for to fulfill whatever desires you white folks have. That is not how the world should work. And it's not okay that a bunch of white people got together in a room and decided that they're going to tell a story about a non-fiction real life place. They couldn't bother to even give us business, give my city business. They couldn't even bother to come shoot here so that we could get some economic activity. They had to go film it in Mumbai for what reason? We have a film industry. You can use our film industry. You can work with our film industry. You can employ our people. You can stay at our hotels and give back some of what your ancestors stole. But no, you want to keep stealing from us to satisfy whatever cravings you have as white folks. When are we going to be allowed to tell our own stories? When are we going to be able to voice our trauma? When, I, I don't care if this movie isn't about any of that. I don't care if this is a like movie about terrorism. I don't care if this is a story about like, um, what I think it is, is like someone is trying to save someone else. Like the white man comes in and is trying to save someone else. I don't know. I don't care because this is every single thing that white people do by coming into our country is going to resemble what has been our history for the past few centuries. That white people thought that they could come into our land and enslave us and use us and our bodies and our labor and our silk like uh, fabrics and our um, 
natural resources like um, spices and farming and agriculture, like that white people did that and then these white people are continuing to do that, that is not okay. It's uh, it's offensive, it's insensitive, it's like inhumane to just want, like just use us as a prop but even then it's not even us you're not even doing that correctly like not only are you trying to use us as props you're not even doing it correctly like what yeah why 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 do white folks get to criticize us relentlessly without having to grapple with the reality of how they established most of these crises like why well, there, this is extractive colonialism in practice. The fact that white people want to use Dhaka City as a like playground to explore their like creativity and storytelling capabilities. Like, no, you don't get to do that. You need to put in the work. You need to understand that you need to have, like you need to employ our people. You need to employ brown creatives that are struggling, looking for work. You need to have them in your writer's room. You need to have them in your, um, you need to have them to be like, um, producers, you need them on your cast, you need them for like costume design, makeup, like you need brown people telling you how to engage with content about brown people. How is that not an obvious um, fact? That's, that is fact. You need brown people in the storytelling process if your basis of storytelling is going to be, oh, we're going to tell a story about a brown person. No duh, brown people need to be behind the scenes. So I'm tired of this. I'm tired of whiteness in general just being so overpowering in every single field. Um, I'm tired of it. It needs to stop. Please don't watch this movie. I don't, like, again, I don't care if your favorite actor's on it. I don't care if you really like this director. Go watch some of their other work. But this is offensive. We need to stop supporting, like, we, we vote with our wallets. And we need to stop supporting these creators that are so limited in their perspective that they can't understand that something like this is a problem. That the fact that nobody that worked on this movie looks like the people that live in the city they're trying to portray, that's not okay. That is not just not something you should be okay with. Please don't watch this movie. Don't engage with it. Don't give it like views and boost their sales. Um, let it die out and let all future movies like this die out too. Please do your research on who is working behind the scenes on telling what stories. Don't watch stories about black trauma without knowing that there were black folks that worked on that movie in every facet of the movie because it is important that we consume media as ethically as possible. Like, it's so important to get marginalized identities their due um, credit and recognition and get them, like, get them money to tell their stories because, or else white people are going to continue telling all of our stories. And that's not okay because the world is not white. Like, white folks need to, need a reality check. Y'all need to, y'all need to just cut the bullshit. Cut it, cut the caucasity. I'm, I'm done. We are moving from angry rant to angry rant because 
what the actual fuck. Joe Biden, pick Kamala Harris. Pick Kamala Harris as your vice president. End this charade that is going on. Like, we don't have time for this. You need Kamala on your ticket. Like, now, you need her to be um, mobilizing every single resource that she has explicitly on every airwave. Um, she, her face is going to be the face of your campaign, whether you announce her as VP or you announce her for Secretary of State or you give her some, like, stupid... Uh, insignificant role in your cabinet, whatever it is, she is going to be the face of your campaign. She is that girl. So you need to stop um, playing into this game of like, oh, let's like keep it interesting to see who I will pick for my VP. We don't have time for that. We need Kamala. We need Kamala to be doing the work that she knows how to do, that she's shown us she knows how to do, and we need to start it right now. Um, Kamala Harris, I am not... Um, like, I, I am. I've been an avid Kamala supporter since forever. Um, and I supported her initially for when she was running for president. I am a proud member of the K-Hive. But I will not say that I am the best person to talk about Kamala Harris um, because I'm very emotional when it comes to uh, the women in leadership that I support. I'm a lot better uh, making pitches in writing anyways. So what I will do is uh, kind of hint like hit a, a few of the points and then i'll direct you to um a few resources of folks that know how to speak on this topic better so um the first just just debunking a couple of myths first is uh people love to label kamala as like a centrist uh kamala is not a centrist kamala is the second most progressive president uh sitting u.s senator and she is only behind ed markey who is the senator who co uh who wrote the um green new deal so the fact that based on her lifetime record of voting in the senate she is the second most progressive sitting senator yes beef uh she comes on the list before y'all's woke king bernard sanders who is ninth and elizabeth warren who is ranked fifth kamala is second um and she like this label that she has it stems from a smear campaign it was uh started by the alt-right and then the fringe left and they like are basically two sides of the same stone they came together and they decided oh we're going to tell this story about how kamala is not a progressive senator how her record is like laden with whatever crimes they think she committed um they don't even they don't believe what they are saying uh but that it's it's a smear campaign that if you're going along with it you clearly have not done your research um this is operation block the black woman that is what's happening and that is what happened in her presidency uh she had some questionable staffing choices um, other than that, it was block the black woman. People just don't want to see her succeed because she has the audacity to be that good being a visible, present, and powerful black woman. That is all that is happening there. So um, I'm going to, again, I'm going to direct you to a few uh, few resources a little bit later. Um, Elizabeth Warren for VP, no. Uh, she is 70 plus years old. She is from the East Coast. Massachusetts is not a swing state. Uh, she placed third in her own primary, like for her home state, in her own home state in the primary, she placed third. I was a Warren supporter too. After Kamala, I went to Team Warren. And 
there is she there is no case to be made for her to be vice president. Um, she should not be the VP pick. Point blank, period. She should not be the VP pick. Um, a random white woman from a swing state should not be picked for VP either. Don't play with me, Joe. That is not the way to go for one state. No, don't do that. The Midwestern states, they don't vote with each other. There's no pattern where if one Midwestern person is on the ticket, all the Midwestern swing states are all of a sudden going to vote for that candidate. There's no, that is not what the job of a VP is. Like, yes, VPs are very influential in, um, in, uh, convincing independent voters and then convincing voters that are on the outskirts of your own uh of your own stances but a, a vp should not be used as a ploy to get one swing state electoral votes that's not how you're going to win this election don't pick a random white lady from the midwest um a completely unvetted stacy abrams is not the way to go for vp either um i know Everyone's like a huge Stacey fan, and I I am not going to say I'm not a fan of hers. I do like her, um, but she hasn't won a national-scale election. The, uh, the highest position that she's held was Georgia House Minority Leader, and that minority is like on the border of being a super minority. So as great as it is that she is fighting so hard for voter representation and that she like almost certainly won uh the governor position um she is not officially the governor of georgia right and she um has not run for state office multiple times um so that governor run was like her only thing that she's done um to um, I guess, like, aspiration-wise, so that jump from, like, a I didn't win governor to I am now the vice presidential candidate pick, it, there's just so many steps in there that's missing. We don't know what's in, um, what they're going to hit Stacey with if she is the pick. We know what they're going to hit Kamala with. We can prepare for that. As Democrats, it is, um, imperative that they pick someone who has already been vetted by the national media, that all their skeletons are already out. Stacey Abrams is not that person. She um, is doing great work with uh, getting people to the polls and making sure that uh, people have access to uh, different forms of voting. Um, and I love that. I respect that. I commend that. And she, for... Uh, someone her age to have accomplished this much is great, but... For VP, it's not enough. And if it is her, I will like obviously be 100% um, on board because we have to get Trump out of office. But she is being touted as like the anti-Kamala. And that is not the narrative I want someone to get... Um, to get them to a position of power is that like oh i wasn't this other person that you just didn't want for some reason and that's why you're flocking to me because if you see the people that are flocking to her they're not they haven't been there the whole time they've only been there since kamala has been the front runner for vp slot they've only started touting stacy as like the progressive uh, black woman candidate to kamala's like centrist corporate shill it's false um kamala is one of the most, like I've said, Kamala is one of the most progressive uh, uh, candidates that has held public office. Um, 
And Stacey Abrams, again, we don't know her uh, outside of losing a governor election and then pushing the narrative for voting rights forward. That's great. Again, I'm not... I'm not saying Stacey Abrams is not a great public figure, but no way is she a better choice for vice president than Kamala Harris is. Um, she has not... Uh, yeah, I've said all I can say about Stacey Abrams. Um, we need Kamala. We just need... Like, we need Kamala. She's popular. She's popular in her home state. She is a sitting senator for the largest... Uh, for the most populous state in the United States. Her constituents love her. Um, she has put in decades of work fighting for communities. She has been changing institutions brick by brick so that her work for minorities cannot be overturned when she leaves office. She is, like, if you read her bills, this is something I said about Hillary Clinton all the time, is if you read her policy proposals, you will get so bored because they are that good. They are that detailed. They are that, um, like, they're that intentional that if you read it you're gonna be like okay so you're solving every single thing i don't even have to put a thought into this i'm bored like that is how good their policies are and kamala as a sitting senator in mitch mcconnell's um senate which is just like mitch mcconnell is fucking nuts um, Kamala is still putting in the work every day she is not just like tacking her name on at the end of a bill she is doing the work she is crafting the legislation she's getting the votes she is getting the word out there about what her plans are about how she plans on implementing it who exactly is blocking her from doing so like she is she is amazing and um she need like we need someone with her energy we need someone with her expertise of running national campaigns we need someone to energize the base and the base of the party is black women, you all gotta pay it back to the black women that have been fighting for decades for the Democrats. It's time, it's time. White women have had their chance. White women did not show up for the white woman. You all need to give black women a chance to show up for the black women because unlike their white women counterparts they will do that they've been doing that consistently and they deserve a chance to vote for the most qualified black woman they deserve to vote for that ticket for all of their hard work at least that much we owe that to them and we need to get a record turnout of black voters anyways because no democrat has won an election without record black turnout in the past two decades so we need black voters to turn up to the polls and that's going to happen with kamala harris um she has done the work black people know that she's done the work they know that she's from community she knows the community she knows how to work for them she knows how to speak to them she knows how to represent them at a local level at a state level at a federal level She's done the work and she deserves to be credited for it. Give black voters a reason to mobilize. Let's get Trump out of office. Biden, pick Kamala. We know you are training your successor. Um, we know and expect you to drop out after your first turn, uh, term. And in 2024, the front runner is going to be whoever you pick for VP. So make it Kamala Harris. Um, resources. So there is a fantastic um, 
YouTube series that has started now. It's called Live with the K-Hive. And it is being posted, I don't know if it's being posted in multiple places. I know it is being posted on the YouTube channel titled Black Woman Views. So that is a channel you should be following anyways. So we'll, um, Black Woman Views is uh, this fantastic uh, commentator, political activist, um, just uh, one of the most intelligent people ever, Reese Colbert, and her Twitter handle is at Black Women Views. She does a lot of um, Q&As, political Q&As, uh, a lot of like debunking myths, um, a lot of um, like two minute clips of uh, boiling down like a topic into a summary and then like hour long clips that explore that topic more in depth. So you should be following her anyways. Um, yes, she is a black woman, as are every other person that I'm uh, about to name. And so they're, they've organized six members of the K-Hive, which is like the Kamala Hive, uh, which is her supporters. Um, they have created a series called Live with the K-Hive, and there are six of them. They are... Um, so Reese, who is Black Women Views, and then Drew, who is at Drew Comments. Um, Sydney A, whose Twitter handle is at not the Sydney A, all together, not the Sydney A. Maya Contreras, who is Maya T. Contreras, so at Maya T. Contreras. Heather Rose, whose at is uh, Heather Rose Goes, so H-E-A-T-H-E-R-R-O-S-E-G-O-E-S. Heather Rose Goes. Um, and Kenny, whose Twitter handle is at King of Clapbacks. These six folks um, come from all different uh, experiences with activism. And in their first uh, episode, uh, which was uploaded last week, they talk about how they got to uh, got involved with Kamala's uh, campaign. Um, whether it was on like a grassroots level or it was in a organizing um, online level or it was a marketing role or it was like working directly with the campaign itself. Um, and then they debunk negative smears against Senator Harris with the receipts, with the facts. Uh, they're all incredible. You should be following all six of them. Um, I've learned so, so much from these six people. Um, they just uploaded their second episode, so I'm very, very excited to go listen to that. The last point I want to be making uh, in favor of Kamala for VP is that she has the support. She has the community. She has the base of um, people that are going to be required to win this election. She has a group of uh, fighters ready. No, like, I promise you, no Midwestern white lady has the base that Kamala has. No one has, Stacey Abrams does not have the organization that is going to be required to reach all the people that need to go out to the vote, uh, polls and vote uh, Trump out of office. Kamala Harris's support is that deep-rooted. It is that organized. It is already pre-existing. She has a group of dedicated uh, activists that will fight tooth and nail to get her into office. And we need that. We can't be messing around. There's less than 200 days to the election. So Joe Biden, stop fucking around. Pick Kamala Harris. We 
are into our last segment now, um, and this is going to be a... This is going to be completely unstructured, and I just want to share this story um, because for a lot of reasons that I will get into, I can't really uh, share this story to my friends and family that are... Usually, I would post this on Facebook, and while I don't use that platform a whole lot, um, something like this... I would like to reach the people that I know, but there are complications with that, um, which is why I can't put it on blast um, on in that audience. And I know nobody listens to this. Uh, nobody that I uh, know in real life listens to this. Well, my friends do. Hopefully my friends do, but... Um, not my cousins and family friends and just, like, people that I know. So I'm stalling, but um, there is this man who was really good friends with my dad. So they know each other from university, and my dad has, like, a friend group in university that is over 50 people, and they've all kept... They were all in the same major... And they've all kept in touch throughout the years. Like, we're all in each other's circles. I grew up with them as, like, a third cousin group. There was, like, my dad's family, my mom's family, and then my dad's friends' kids. Um, and this one man in particular, uh, who's my dad's friend, uh, and his wife and kids and us, we were very, very, very close. We were very close in the sense that any memory that I have of my childhood, they're part of. Um, anywhere that I've traveled to in my country, we went with them. Um, we were just, like, super, super close. So there's um, some, like, the older sibling is this girl that I consider, like, an older sister to me. And her younger brother, who's a lot younger than I am, um, I consider, like, my younger brother. So... And the, her mom um, is a maternal figure for me. I've learned so much from her. Um, I've learned about life and just, like, random facts. And we would talk all the time. She taught me how to um, have... Well, she didn't teach... Like, she was a part of uh, teaching me intelligent intellectual conversation from a very young age. And just a, a lot of um, my, not early childhood, but, like, from maybe, like, when I was eight-ish uh, to, to now, it ha they have been a big part of. Um, this man is not a good man. And I learned that he's not a good man for the first time in the States when I was, like, I think 15 and our parents, like, took us on a really long drive and had this discussion with us that he had apparently been uh, kicked out of his house by his wife and kids because th the situation had just gotten that bad. Um, and at first, we thought that it was a, it was a cheating thing. So 
which it was. Um, we thought it was a cheating thing, and he was cheating, and he got caught, and so they kicked him out. We later found out that this was an issue for their entire lives. It wasn't just um, a one-off thing. It had been a thing for as long as we've known them as a family. And we never picked up on it because of the resilience and strength of the mother. And so they kicked him out and then everyone that we know tried to convince them to get back together. And they didn't because she had, after years and years of enduring what this man did, um, she'd made up her mind and her daughter helped her stick to her guns. And they built a life from them outside of him. And for the last eight years, they have had no contact with him. What he did was be a serial predator to his female employees. Um, he would abuse them. He would um, assault them. He just would be like every bad thing that you can think of a, of a male with power doing, he has done and more. And I didn't know the full extent of this until like a few years back. I'm 23 now. Um, so I would say maybe like when I was 20, I learned about like the full extent of what his offenses were. Um, a lot of, but I had an understanding of what it was that he was doing before that, before I was like officially told. So a lot of the work that I do now um, and that I've done in college revolves around um, trying to prevent sexual assault and harassment and create gender equality in the sense that like women's bodies don't belong to men and men need to understand that and need to drastically change how we've been throughout history taking advantage of um this power imbalance uh and it largely stems from from this one incident because I haven't seen I've seen a lot of gender uh gender dynamics growing up but not abusive um in the sexual sense so I see I have experience with um emotional abuse I have experience with like manipulation not like my experience but I'm talking about like growing up I watched these qualities but this one was the first and to date the only person that is closely tied into my family and our family life who has been involved in this sort of a situation. So why this has been brought up all over again for me is he died um, yesterday. Like he passed away of a um, of a third heart attack. <laughs> Um, of a third heart attack and he was taken off life support and throughout this time I had been like the liaison 
with his family like of his of his family and his ex-family so like these updates i was the one giving them the updates of like oh hey like he's dying oh he's on life support oh they're gonna take off life support um because i believe that everyone has a right to know what is happening with their um blood relations i believe that my uh friends my my um like my siblings the two people that i'm saying i consider siblings uh i think they have a right to grieve if they want to celebrate if they want to um not feel anything if they want to so i wanted to be able to um give them all the information so that they were aware of what was happening they did ultimately decide to not go visit him in the hospital or go to his funeral um there was definitely uh abuse there as well with the children um as far as i know only physical violence but it could have been more um and i i don't say only to like diminish the extent of that but i just i i meant that as like a category like only one category and for me this is like one of the building blocks of my personality and it's very important to me that we as a society say no to these serial predators with power that we take away their power that we not um remember them in a positive light after they die and so it's been hard um watching all of these other people that I grew up with like my dad's other friends like celebrate his life and mourn his death and talk about praying for his like travel into heaven because I don't believe that I would like him to burn in the pits of hell for all of eternity I would like every other man like him who thinks that their money and status gives them access to women's bodies um to die painful slow agonizing deaths um i would like them to never see the light ever again once they go into um hell and it's very interesting to me that this notion of wishing that everyone that you know go into heaven has somehow become a part of organized major organized religion because the whole point of heaven and hell is to distinguish the good actors from the bad ones so if we're saying that a man who serially abused women all throughout his life and abused his family enough to the point where they said we don't want anything more to do with you to know all of this and still wish that he ends up in heaven what are you saying about your faith what are you saying about what you believe your faith to be because if men like him are going to heaven i don't want to share that space with them i didn't want to share this earth with them and i don't want to share this promised land of 
here, no one is going to touch you. No one is going to make you feel in, unequal. No one is going to make you feel worthless. And no one is going to make you want to stop living. Heaven is supposed to be the place where you get to let go of all of the hurt that the world has caused you, not share space with the people that are giving you that pain. So it's just interesting to me that there are these um, super religious friends of my dad who are like organizing prayer circles for him, knowing that like knowing the full extent, I know that they know the full extent of all of his offenses. Um, and by I know that they know, I mean I know that they know because my dad has talked to them about it and they've talked about it in the group. They've talked about it one-on-one um, -on -one with each other and he's tried to explain to them why they should no longer be friends with him, but they still were. And so my family's kind of just like at a crossroads where we are struggling with how able to accept these offenses people are just because they're friends with them from a long time ago like that's all it takes for you to forgive someone that's abusing his employees for decades look i it just doesn't fit into my understanding of good and bad and i refuse to think of myself as a bad muslim for not forgiving this man first of all the concept of forgiveness it's not even like they're sharing all these messages about how they're forgiving him it's like what are you forgiving him for who gave you the authority to forgive him for crimes he committed against other people why do his victims not have the right to forgive him and the right to not forgive him why is it you forgive what are you forgiving him for and I know people, my people, who he has hurt. I do not forgive him for that. And I refuse to think that I'm a bad person because I won't forgive this man just because he died of a third heart attack. I, why I think that's so funny is because this man was like the most unhealthy person ever. I'm shocked that oh, he like it took this long for him to have his third heart attack because he had one like seven years ago. And then... Somehow, his second one happened only, like, two weeks ago. So there was, like, a whole seven-year period where he was living just as unhealthily as he was when his first heart attack happened. Um, that it took him this long to get his second one, and then his third one happened, and then he died. Um, I'm celebrating. This is a joyous occasion for me. He can no longer hurt people. Um, he can no longer... Yeah, that's just it. He can no longer hurt people. And... Unfortunately, how things work in this world, I could be speaking out against this. I could be putting it on blast. Um, but nothing would change. His, there's, there, there is no accountability. There's no system of accountability, especially in my country. Um, all his employees, even if they know that he is, this is what he's doing, they have to work for him because we don't have jobs. And poor people can't afford to... Um, not have jobs because then they can't eat. And if they can't eat, their parents can't eat. They don't have money, their parents can't eat. And then they all die together. That's, that is the reality of the situation. And so I can't warn them. There are no resources to support them. There is no government framework. There are no like big NGOs that we can um, 
set him up to like monitor him. The the judicial process is like doesn't care. The government is only interested in stealing money. Um, it's just a completely hopeless and helpless situation for victims of sexual assault in this country or like all over the world, honestly. And me speaking up about this would not bring any solace to any of his victims because most of his victims I don't know personally. So they w- this message would never reach them. They would never know that there are people in solidarity with them because this me- like me posting this would never get into their um, circle of knowledge. Um, it won't help my uh, the people that I consider family because they already know that I support them, that I believe them, that I am with them 100%. And they have explicitly instructed me not to put this message out into the world because, um, well, out into our world, not like the world, but like specifically to the people that... Um, are in this circle that I'm talking about um, because they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the calls. They don't want to deal with the inquiries. They don't want to deal with um, just people showing either fake allyship or um, like saying nasty things to them like this man's family has done um, for like how they let him, they uh, kicked him out of the house. Um, They don't want it. So it's like, I don't know who... I would be helping and I guess that's why I'm struggling so much with this because I use this as motivation to um, to work. Um, I've written the first policy that I wrote in my job was to uh, streamline sexual assault reporting and punishment um, in my institution for over 4,000 employees and like uh, tens of thousands of Uh, people that we're benefiting with our work and the people that we come into contact with as an institution so that they have a uh, very clear understanding of their rights uh, and of where to report violations uh, of their rights and how we as an institution stay accountable to um, punishing every single offense and treating every offense as uh, as fact uh, unless proven otherwise and how like how to do due diligence in investigations how like rights of the complainant rights of the uh rights of the accused and um how to spread this information like uh, i worked on uh marketing for this policy and how to get it into the hands of people in multiple languages in um uh just through various forms of media so like video print um obviously just promoting the policy itself. Um, So that, like, I use this experience with this man that I've known so closely to inform the work that I'm doing currently. But how does that, like, how does that help his victims? It doesn't. Um, But hopefully it helps someone else's victims, right? And... I don't know, I guess I'm struggling a little bit with accepting that this is all that I can do. And yeah, there's no there's no like neat end to this. This isn't gonna like 
you know, like, oh my God, like something happened and then he was in crisis and then like the crisis got solved. Like, no, it's, it's with me. It's still, I'm thinking about it just all, all day, all the time. And I don't know if I'll ever make my peace with the fact that I'm not speaking out and like naming and shaming him. Um, but it's, it's not like, I, I don't know. I don't know what the impact of it would be. I don't know. Um, I know that the people that I know that have been affected don't want it to be said. So out of respect for them, I'm not going to. Um, yeah, I just, I just needed to let that out. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, and yeah. All right, we've reached the episode uh, four end, and I would just like to say thank you so very much for listening. If you listened all the way through, you are a champion. I love you. Um, Please, uh, like some of my other faves have been doing, please promote my work if you feel like you enjoyed listening to this episode and you would want other people to listen, because this is like... All I want to do with my life is use my voice and have it reach people and start conversations. Um, If you have any additions to anything that I've said, please at me on Twitter. Um, It's called By Guy Reviews, uh, B-I-G-U-Y-R-E-V-I-E-W-S. So just the name of my podcast Um, and at me. Uh, Every week, I like to end with a compliment to myself and then I want to urge you to compliment yourself after you've finished listening to this podcast. Um, This week my compliment to myself is I finally organized um, with my dad about half of our books. So we have hella books and we moved and then they've just been sitting in their boxes but yesterday finally got half of it done Um, and because the books are now out of their cage I am Finally, getting back to uh, my habit of being a avid reader. So I have a huge list of books that now I will be reading one by one. I just finished reading Becoming by Michelle Obama for the third time. Um, and I am currently reading, I started today, The Book Thief, which is my first read through. Um, so I want to compliment myself for actually getting that done. We're going to get the other half done again, hopefully soon, now that we've started. Hopefully we get to finish as well. Um, And uh, excited to get back into reading. All right. Have a lovely, wonderful day. Um, Please stay the fuck inside. And I will speak to you in about a week. This is a trigger warning for um, discussions of sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, sexual abuse, emotional abuse. Um, And if you do not want to listen to a discussion about these topics um, in a very specific uh, situation, please uh, stop listening now because I will be exploring this topic in kind of in detail. So um, just just as a PSA.